Here's the big question this show answers. How do we leverage technology and human science to positively impact our personal and professional life? The tech human experience has the answer. Here's your host, Inc. 5000 tech founder, neuroscience junkie, and Navy SEAL wannabe, Javier Guerra. Hello, my fellow tech humans. Today's guest brings over 20 years of healthcare administration experience, including serving as an associate vice president of telemedicine at Gessinger Health System, and currently leading a consulting firm focused on digital health. He's not just a digital health expert. He's a team builder committed to enhancing patient lives and a strong believer in ongoing education within healthcare. Please welcome David Fletcher. Thanks for joining us today, David. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting space that you're in, right, with healthcare and, and, you know, COVID and all of the changes that have been coming at the industry and at the world in general. You know, I'm really interested to talk, you know, a little bit more about your background and your experience and really kind of tap into some of that wisdom that you've uh, acquired over the, uh, the your long period in, in, in this space. Yeah. yeah, it's been an amazing uh, few years. It's been a sea change really in the, in the industry, no doubt. Yeah, I bet it's, you know, we work with a lot of healthcare companies and it's, uh, it's definitely a good place to be in healthcare because people are, you know, not going to have any less need for healthcare, so to speak. Um, so, so let's get started with, uh, with the stat, you know, the, the FCC reports that approximately 21 million Americans lack high speed internet access, creating barriers for telemedicine. Accessibility is a significant issue in healthcare. How is your team slash company slash what is your, you know, take on tackling the challenges of providing telehealth to rural or like less connected communities in the, uh, in the world, so to speak, US? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a real challenge. And, uh, you know, I think that a couple uh, approaches I've taken in the past, you know, are kind of trying to, to work at it at a macro level and, you know, working with policymakers and, and funding agencies to try to get, you know, solve the underlying problem as much as we can and get just improve access to, to broadband. Um, and so, for example, at Geisinger, uh, we actually got funding from the FCC uh, to provide uh, substantially reduced cost uh, broadband to kind of very rural areas. Um, and, but, you know, it's, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of resources to really make it available to everyone in the country. Um, and so, so the other piece of that is then, okay, let's, let's not just put it off until this problem gets solved. What can we do today to make sure that, you know, folks who live in very rural areas can still get access to some of the benefits that come with telemedicine? So approach we took was, okay, if, if a patient doesn't have broadband in their home, we don't just say, well, sorry, you got to drive two hours into the tertiary care center. We'll, we would see if they had, you know, within 10 minutes, did they live within a clinic that we operated with? And so we had telemedicine clinic at, uh, equipment at most of our clinics. And so we would ask them when we were scheduling, okay, you don't have broadband. I see you live next to our clinic in Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, for instance, that has a cart. Can you drive five minutes to that clinic? They'll host you there. And then we, you can still see our subspecialist who lives two hours down the mountain. Um, and, and so, you know, that's, we kind of took that, you know, kind of regionalized approach to try to address a lot of those, you know, kind of uh, limitations to broadband. Nice, nice. You know, I know that's a growing issue, right? Like in a lot of places, but how do you think things are going to change with technologies like Starlink. I know it's still not quite there yet, but, right. but it's, I mean, it's, it's huge of what's going on with Starlink. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it, the, the amazing thing is, you know, obviously it's, you know, a huge need in, in rural areas throughout our country, but then really throughout the world, you know, I mean, the, the, the nice thing is in theory, you know, we could have, say, you know, some of the top sub, 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 sub specialists in a very, you know, kind of unique area 
should be able to get to whichever patients throughout the world need their expertise. Um, you know, whether that's in sub-Saharan Africa or Asia or, or you know, the, um, in the rural area of Appalachia here in the U.S. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic. You know, I think there's a lot of forward movement in this, in this space. And, and I think increasingly, you know, even uh, public policymakers, both in the U.S. And, and elsewhere, are starting to think of broadband as, you know, it's not just a, a convenient tool it, it is actually really a, a public health uh, type of tool that, that needs to be, you know, thought of along with, you know, all the other things, vaccines and everything else. Um, it, it's a vital way, part of how we're delivering healthcare across the world these days. Yeah, it, it's, it's still, it's still almost surreal, surreal about how COVID has shifted everything. You know, things that I didn't think were going to happen for another five years, just it's almost like they immediately happened and everything shifted like overnight. It's, 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 uh, it's crazy. Um, so let's dive into today's topic, universal telemedicine, bridging gaps and challenging assumptions. In this episode, we'll dive deep into how designing telemedicine with the patient in mind can drastically change the healthcare landscape. David Fletcher with Geisinger Health System will share survey data and real world examples that demonstrate why telemedicine isn't just a convenience for young technology enthusiasts, but can provide significant benefits across a wide range of demographics. So, so David, this is, you know, medicine in general has always, you know, been an interest of mine. As, as a kid, I wanted to be a, a doctor. I was pre-med. And so it's, it's very, this is all very interesting to me. So I'm going to try to contain myself and, and not take us off track uh, to, to kind of your area of expertise, but, um, but really, you know, when it comes down to like, you know, designing user experience, uh, what role do you feel that user interface and user experience plays in building trust and comfort for telemedicine users? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's, it's really key and, and particularly because I'm very strong advocate that we, we must not think of, of telehealth and digital health as you know kind of a niche product a convenience for people of means or something that's 20 years down the road once the millennials and you know uh, gen y get to a, an age where they're demanding more health care you know it really needs to be a tool for everyone um and so i think it you know it's really important to be thinking in terms of okay what what does the patient want and and what can they use and 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 so you know in the past a lot of folks i've i've i cringe when people talk about like okay this is a great tool for folks you know kids born with an iphone in their hand they're going to want to get on and do this you know through their phone we get it uh but it's not really for you know the older folks and, and i completely disagree with that and i've we've actually found a lot of survey data our our satisfaction scores are really high uh, for patients over 70, 80, we've had patients over 90 use, use telehealth and they love it because it solves a lot of problems for them often. It, it, it prevents them from having to get transportation. Um, I, I, I never forget, uh, we had a, a survey response from somebody one time who said, I have a brain tumor and having to go to your hospital and get in one of your elevators makes me sick every time. And it, you know, it's a use case I would have never thought of, but it's it's that kind of thing that is is so universal, you know, that if you can really make sure this tool is available to everybody who needs it, and not make assumptions about demographics. And then a couple, I want to highlight a couple of the words you get you used, which are, are perfect: the trust and comfort, because that is absolutely key when you're. I think when folks are designing these tools. Um, and, and I'll tell you why, because <laughs> that same survey I talked about with, oh, our satisfaction scores were great in the low 90s. And, and most health systems are seeing something along those lines as well. Um, but when we ask our, our patients, OK, great, you love it. Do you plan to use telemedicine? Say, you know, if we can get past COVID, you'll, will you continue using it? And I expected extremely high responses there, considering how satisfied they were with the service. But it was markedly lower. It was in the 60s uh, percentage that that folks in, at the time said they intended to continue telemedicine. 
And so, I, you know, I was curious about that disconnect. And so we asked them, okay, what concerns, if any, do you have about telemedicine? And the, the number one response was, well, I don't know that it's as comprehensive an exam as I get in person. And so I think that that trust and that comfort level, it, it's important to build that in. You know, you, we, we have to think about what is going to make a patient feel like this is a true exam. We have to we have to build in the elements of an in-person exam into the video exam as well so that they feel comfortable that they're actually getting a full service. And it's not just an emergency done because of you know COVID or some sort of public emergency. Yeah, I would imagine that has a lot to do with what what they're being seen for, right? Their their personality as well, right? And so that's really cool. Like, you know, uh, the point that you made about you would have never thought of that use case without that that person coming forward. And, you know, I think that's where a lot of organizations make mistakes in maybe designing products that they think people are going to want without really doing that market research and really talking to the people first. You know, I learned how to build uh, products and or service lines from a company uh, from a system based in MIT through a through a technology incubator here uh, called Geekdom in San Antonio. And through that system, it it shows you basically that, you know, base you need to go and talk to the public first, talk to the end users and ask them what their problems are and what they want. And then you go and design that service or that product designed around what they want and what they're asking for. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of times as leaders, we forget that, that it's, it's, you know, it's not about what we think it's about what they want. So absolutely. Yeah. I could not agree more. And I, I, I try, I say that often to vendors who, you know, might pitch me on a, a certain product is <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I, you're solving a problem. I don't have, you know, I don't know why you, you thought that this would be helpful to us, but, uh, you know, uh, absolutely like uh, focus on, on the patients first and then, uh, and then let me know what, if you can help them. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, you know, of course, AI is a hot topic right now and, you know, technology is advancing so quick. How do you think machine learning algorithms improve the diagnostic capabilities of telemedicine? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know there there certainly is a lot of uh, uh, potential there, and of course, what what you're getting a lot of ink written, you know, spilled about oh, you know, this is this going to replace doctors? Uh, is the is AI just going to totally diagnose and give you a care plan? I, I've worked a fair amount with, with some AI tools and chatbots and things like that. And I, I'll be honest, I, I think we're we're still a, quite a ways from that even being a, a realistic consideration. Um, however, I do think even as we sit today, there is a big role for AI to play. And the way we used it really was mostly about kind of triaging and guiding the patients to the right level of care. So the, the tools are good enough to kind of know if it's, uh, you know, really acute emergent uh it's not necessarily going to land on the exact right you know icd-9 diagnosis code um but it can it can give you an idea of the acuity and it can also the other nice thing is it can handle things where you know the patient is just looking for an answer for something they want to know where to to find their doctor's office or they want to make an appointment or something like that the chatbot's really good at then saying, oh, this has nothing to do with symptoms, but I can guide you over here. Um, and so, I, you know, I think I think there's still a big role to play. And, and particularly for a lot of like, you know, health systems like Geisinger, where, uh, you know, it's 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 difficult to recruit to that area. So there are some subspecialties where, you know, it's it's we don't have an overabundance of access and. Um, so, you know, there are national studies that show that even with a referral coming from a primary care provider, a skilled provider, 30% of referrals end up being medically unwarranted. Um, and so what we often describe as, oh my gosh, we've got this provider shortage, and th there is, but, but a big chunk of that is actually more of just a misallocation of resources, that we're referring people to these specialists that, that where that patient really never needed to be there. I think AI could play a big role in in really helping to triage and, and streamline the referral process as well. That's interesting. 
You know, and, and that's something that I, I, I talked to my team about recently, right? Is it's something similar, but it's, it's, it's thinking about like, what, what resources do we already have? Right. It's, it's like, you know, we're very quick to want new tools or new ways or new solutions, but I think less often do we slow down and think, what are we wasting? What do we currently have that we're not fully utilizing? We're not doing in the best handling in the best manner that's creating waste. Right. And, and, you know, I never, I never really thought of that from, you know, a medical perspective, but that's, that's a huge point. Like there's gotta be so much of stat, so many stats that are being skewed because of waste. And it, it, exactly like that example that you gave. So that's interesting, a very interesting stack. And, and I, I think that would also, I, I don't know how it would play into it, but I would think that that would have something to do with prices increasing, um, potentially insurance premiums increasing, stuff like that because of the perceived or the created shortage, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know how that plays yeah. into that, but. Yeah. I would imagine it has some effect on it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it certainly is, um, you know, it, to whatever degree, anytime you just have, like you were referring to, yeah, even outside of medicine, is really scarce resource, but that is really good at doing a very specific task. You know, anytime you, you have that scarce resource doing something that isn't that task, you know, it's just, it's economically inefficient. And, and you know, there's enormous amount of that, unfortunately, in, in medical in the medical field so you might have a say a maternal fetal medicine subspecialist they're really skilled at handling uh high-risk pregnancies but you'll often find them seeing you know uh, women who have a normal pregnancy <laughs> which is i mean and it's fine they can certainly do it but it's just it's not the marriage of that you know that scarce resource with that very specific skill set that they're trained for um, and it happens all the time all across the country. And, uh, and to whatever degree, you know, we just chip away at that. Um, we don't have to eliminate it entirely, but if we can chip away at it, you're absolutely right. It can, it'll, it'll, it can bring costs down because it'll, it'll send the, the low acuity patients to the right level of care um, and then keep available the really high acuity uh, access for the really high acuity patients. Yeah, for the people that need it most, right? And, and it's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's some physicians that are just booked up like you have to wait quite some time to be able to see them so Months. yeah that's yeah, that's a huge issue out there so now what about like broadband infrastructure uh, you know like what types of solutions um are, are being implemented really to overcome connectivity issues yeah yeah so you know we had a, a program at uh, geisinger um that i i proud of we won a couple of awards for it and uh, and basically the, the idea was okay we have a certain fairly small uh, percentage of our population who uses an enormous per percentage of health resources and this is again true everywhere it's you know the old 80 20 rule and uh, certainly true in medicine and um, so is there a way that we can provide more resources to those patients and head off, you know, some of the, say, readmissions to the hospital or unnecessary utilization of the emergency room. Um, and, and so, of course, we thought, well, great, digital tools will be fantastic for these patients. We can reach them in their home before they have an emergency kind of situation. Problem is many of them did not have good access to broadband. Um, and so what we did is we would actually send out nurses or community health assistants kind of lower level less expensive than a doctor uh, resources into the patient's home and they would help coordinate you know social services things like that but we would also send that that nurse with a a kit that had a, a mi-fi so we didn't have to worry about the broadband issue <clears throat> and it had a tablet and you know digital stethoscope an otoscope a handheld camera things i could plug into that tablet and bring in the doctor whenever they went and visited them. Um, and so in that way, we were able to, to say we, 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 you know, Geisinger is a, has a health plan and we were able to save that health plan $2 million in the very first year that we started this. And so we, we really ramped it up after that because, you know, we could show the value of it. Patients loved it. They were able to stay in their homes, 
have somebody come to them and help them. Um, and, you know, it really helped uh, unclog our, our emergency rooms and our hospitals. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and so literally they would bring out like a little internet connectivity device and be able to kind of beam the uh, doctor in, so to speak, to where he could be there on a screen consulting with them and maybe they're taking a heart rate or blood pressure and stuff like that as the doctor's talking to them. Exactly. The nurse would place the stethoscope where the doctor wanted it. Mm. They could use a handheld camera to do a close-up of a rash on their leg and things like that. And the technology has come so far. I mean, the, the stethoscope, I mean, we've had many doctors say they can hear the digital stethoscope better than they can the one traditional one they have in their ears. Um, and the handheld camera, same thing. It's really high definition. Um, so it's the, the tools have come a long way and uh, it's a great way to, to treat those patients. You know, that, that makes me think about you know, one of my, my son's friend's dad is a, is a radiologist and th they're leveraging, you know, AI to read x-rays, right? Or be able to identify things in certain types of radiology screenings. Um, are, are, is AI being used in maybe digital stethoscopes? Is that technology really there yet, so to speak? Listening? Yeah. You know, it's a good question. I, I don't know. I don't know if they're using that to, to tweak and make improvements to it. I, I will say already they've gotten really good. I mean, about 10 years ago, was, you know, we'd occasionally get complaints from doctors. Um, and I've found really in the last five to five years or so, even doctors who started out a little skeptical once they hear it in use, or, uh, they love them. I mean, they're, they're, they really are very sharp and clear. Um, I've never even heard so, of a digital stethoscope. I didn't even know they existed. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah, no, they're so great. They're fantastic. I'm behind the yeah. times when it comes to, to digital <laughs> stethoscopes, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you probably don't have one in your medicine cabinet yet. No, but I, I do have a nice stethoscope. I do have a very nice stethoscope. I, I forgot the brand, but it, it's a very, it's a yeah. cardiologist okay. stethoscope, but probably not the best at identifying the sounds, right? But, but <laughs> right. I have a little bit of practice and training on that at least. So let, let's talk about some like demographics, right? You mentioned demographics earlier, you know, alluded to stereotyping. You didn't quite call it that. I forgot what you called it. But, but um, you know, I think as humans, we have these, we kind of live in our own little universes, right? The way that we, we are raised, kind of how we're programmed when we're kids. We've, we've developed these belief systems, these worldviews, right? That lead into our stereotyping of dem different demographics. Uh, from our own perception, at least, or, you know, I'm sure society has a role to play on that as well. But, but like, what strategies do you think are effective in like including demographics who may be less familiar with technology and telemedicine programs, so to speak? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I'm a big advocate for really standardizing a lot of the, the workflows and the tools that we use that a health system would use for digital health because then it allows that system to have standardized training and, and put videos out and things like that. So you don't have a decision tree of saying, oh, well, if you're if you're having these kinds of visits, here's here's the tool you're going to use. But if it's another kind of visit, you're going to have to figure out how to do this, do it this way. You know, we really want one flow for everyone. Um, and and so, you know, you can do you can do training videos. We would also do pre-visit calls, if, if someone hadn't previously had a telemedicine visit, we would call them ahead of time and make sure they were comfortable, make sure they had the tools they needed, things like that. Now, I will say, I'm a big believer though, that these kinds of tools should also be almost thought of as kind of market research in a way, because if, to me, if a health system is having to rely extensively on these tools, then that's that's a symptom of a greater problem. I think then that's that's a sign that 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 system really needs to go back and look at their workflows and really redesign and and kind of we were talking about earlier really design the whole workflow and the product with that patient in mind, including ones who who aren't electrical engineers by training, you know, and uh, and so it really should be simple enough that it's pretty intuitive. Now, you're not going to get everybody. I understand that. But but if you're having to rely extensively on training folks, then I think you really you really need to rethink your 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 flow. And so that's 
like Eisinger, you know, we really, we would send a, a link, just a text message. We had integrations built with our, our EMR and our, our electronic medical record and our scheduling process so that we knew who that patient was and we would just send them a link to their text message. They would click a link and that was it. They didn't have to sign into a portal. They didn't have to remember a password. They didn't have to know how to download the latest, you know, um, iOS update. You know, it was like we made it very, very seamless. And uh, and we found that a lot of patients, you know, that I always laughed our, our survey responses <laughs> for the first six months after COVID. Almost all of our survey responses started with the words I actually because it was always <laughs> I actually thought this was easy to use. I did not expect that, you know, was was kind of the general gist. And, and I, I was very proud of that because, you know, I think it, 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 it's why we had such success with, you know, all demographics using using that kind of digital tool. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's it, it's I never thought about it that way, but it, it, it's like if you're having a lot of these things that are creating bottlenecks or problems with having to train too many people, you know, I would imagine that like, just like you said, it's like if you understand what they really want and what the patient is asking for you build those into your strategy and your delivery systems, well then theoretically you should have less and less of those needs for um, getting people up to speed, so to speak. But I don't, I don't think I've ever had a, like a telemedicine visit to where I didn't have to like input some information or potentially log in, which is really a pain. So I'm, I'm actually interested if like, I mean, how can I actually use leverage this system i don't know if it's in our area but but uh i've had some issues with you know having some telemedicine visits that were not very streamlined uh, probably not ones that that you guys developed so yeah that's interesting <laughs> it's i'll be honest with you it's a hotly debated topic in the mm -hmm. industry right now that a lot of health systems for, for a lot of good reasons kind of want to drive patients through their their patient portal with the hope that they'll also start to use a lot of the other tools. And there are a lot of really nice tools built into those portals. Now, you know, it, there's an argument being made though, that, well, maybe that's great. And you should definitely encourage folks to do that. But if somebody doesn't want to, or doesn't have the, the technical skills to do that, you don't want to with, to me, to my mind, you don't want to withhold the ability to do, to conduct a video visit. And so, to, to my mind, the best case scenario is kind of the both. You can get to it through the portal if you really use the portal and love it. But if you don't, we can still, we have the technology to get you started in a visit, even if you've got almost no technical ability whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, let's talk about telemedicine versus traditional on-site, right? You have to come in to visit the doctor can you help us understand maybe kind of that dynamic and maybe some pros and cons or just maybe how it may one way may and could enhance the patient relationship, so to speak, patient doctor relationship. Yeah, man, it's, it's the $10,000 question and it's, it's a great one. And, and I, I think in a way we're in the golden age to be able to answer that question because in the past that was always the, the concern, you know, there, there were a lot of barriers pre, prior to COVID around payment and regulatory issues and um, and people wondered like uh, are these visits going to be as effective are they better in some ways are they worse and we didn't have the data because no one was really paying for the visits under except under certain very specific circumstances and so but now like we have enormous amounts of data and and i think it's really important that academicians and uh you know health systems really dig into that and answer that question now i will tell you Anecdotally, um, you know, there are a few instances where we, we hear that, that it's actually preferable uh, to do telemedicine. And, and we hear it a lot in behavioral health so, or mental health. You know, the, the providers say, not only am I able to talk to my patients, which is great, but I'm able to see their surroundings and kind of how they're living. The patient's more comfortable because they're in their home and I'm getting a lot of extra cues about their life circumstances that I wouldn't get if they're kind of in this kind of construct of a of my office building rather than where they lived. Um, so I think there's a lot a lot to be learned in that in that space. Um, you know, at Geisinger, we did a pretty big analysis of uh, you know all the telehealth that we were doing, and 
Um, you know, there's a lot of other benefits, you know, of course, access is really big, uh, particularly in a rural area where we don't have just, you know, a ton of dermatologists and nephrologists and things like that. Um, anxious to, to move to central Pennsylvania, you know, it's just, it's a rural area. And, um, and so we were able to improve access in many cases by providing uh, telemedicine and things like that. So I think there's just, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of benefits, but we also need to look downstream too and see are there other benefits, but are, are there, you know, negatives with it? Um, I think there, there's, you know, it's possible. There are certainly instances where a video visit gets disconnected and, you know, we, we have procedures in place to try to deal with that, to either reconnect or at least finish via phone. But does that have an impact on the overall progression of that person's uh, episode of care? You know, I, I think there's, there's a lot of data that needs to be, to be weeded through and, 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 uh, a lot of I hope to see a lot of uh, a lot of studies published about it. Yeah, for, so that's a it's a really good point that you made about the environment, right? Is because you know, I'm I'm very interested in holistic medicine, and you know environment. If you studied ever study epigenetics and or anything, or just human development, the the environment that people are in has a big piece to play in in their health and they're just in their overall well being. And I never really thought about that is like you're getting kind of a peek into their world in a sense, if you could see some sort of background or hear some, you know, what's going on. But uh, but specifically, I think, like you said, in mental health, like if somebody's more nervous around people or just being out of the house, right, you're going to get a more natural beat on kind of their normal state of being, I guess, you know, if they're in their their comfort zone, so to speak. So. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way, but it's, um, you know, I don't know. Clinical nutrition is another great example. <laughs> I think uh, some of our providers are really enthusiastic about it because they, if the patient was on their iPhone, they could just, um, like, sh open your fridge. Let me, let me, let me see what's in your refrigerator. I mean, you know, not, you know, in a collaborative way, not to try to tell on them, but, you know, and, or the pantry, you know, and let's, let's talk through like, oh, this is maybe if you substituted this for that, you know, and, and things like that. And it, it's. Uh, really incredibly helpful to, to see, you know, because you're at a, in a, in a provider's office, you know, you're kind of presenting yourself as, you know, um, and, and it's, it's just, a, it's, it's not how you typically live, you know, it's just, you're, you're sitting on a, on a cold steel bed, you know, versus really uh, kind of in your, in your home and, and can really show like, here, here, here's what I'm actually doing on a daily basis is anything I can do to, to help uh, improve my health. You know? Nice. Yeah. So, so, you know, with this shift that we've been talking about towards more client self centric healthcare, what, what are some of the outcomes like improved outcomes for patients because of this shift that's been happening? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, one really uh, good example I think is again in behavioral health, but the no-show rates have gone down uh, at least at Geisinger they did uh, for telemedicine visits. Um, so, you know, obviously there's just a lot fewer barriers uh, for a patient, you know, they don't have to worry about the car breaking down, they don't have to worry about getting off work in some cases if they're working from home. Um, and so we actually found, interestingly enough, you know, when COVID first hit, you know, we closed a lot of our, our clinics just like everybody else um, for, for safety reasons. And within about, I think a week and a half of closing our clinics, we were actually seeing more patients for behavioral health than we were before COVID because the no-show rate was that much dramatically lower. Um, and so, so there were so many times where our providers were sitting there and not seeing a patient because the, the, the patient hadn't shown up and we weren't able to substitute anybody in that quickly. Um, so we were actually improving access over time just by, by having telemedicine available for our patients, which is a huge benefit for patients and providers. Yeah, the convenience factor is huge with people, right? I mean, it's, I think it's Absolutely. human nature that we don't we don't really want to be out of our comfort zone, and and then it's you know specifically for certain patients, I would think that you know the more excuses there are for them not to show up, it's going to be easier yeah. for them not to show up, right? If they have to drive across town or be in traffic or you know. Yep. whatever Absolutely. right so david we've you know we've talked a lot about the client-centric approach you know when it comes to 
the approach of a physician or a healthcare provider interacting with a patient and, and really taking more of a conversational approach to service or to uh, providing healthcare to to somebody, how is that really benefiting, or you know, why is that important with uh, today's state of healthcare? Yeah, no, I think it's it's enormously important, and um, and I think it 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 again it opens telehealth availability up to a wide demographic uh, selection, and and I think that's important. So, you know, I think. There, there's a certain assumption that, okay, if we're just knocking out a quick telemedicine visit, uh, you know, no big deal. It's kind of a, a tech friendly group. We're just gonna, you know, kind of quickly do a, 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 UT, a, you know, a urinary tract infection patient or something like that. Um, but if we really think about it as this is just how we're delivering care now, and it should be just like an office visit. We should be developing this relationship with our patients um, you know, then then it really has a lot more value. And, and it also opens it up to more than just the, you know, the 20 year old, uh, you know, just wants a quick one off visit. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's it's, you know, we, we, we actually build a lot of training around that for the providers because, you know, I, it's it's tempting, I think, when you're just on the screen and you don't feel like the patient's in the room with you because they're not. And, and the, the, the provider, you know, can just be documenting and they're really just kind of looking at their computer the whole time, you know, and, and we don't want that. We actually trained our providers and you know, we called it website manner, um, much like, you know, bedside manner. And, and I think it's, it's, it's important, you know, I think we, we you know, really said you know, you've got to keep eye contact, all the same types of things you would do in, an, in a in an, uh, visit in an office, you know, you really should be doing. And I think it's, it's really crucial for health systems going forward, because, you know, if, if, if these visits just become a commodity, you know, you've got Amazon, you've got Walmart, you've got all these other companies that are moving into this space. Um, and so if you're not building those relationships with your patients, you know, you, you, you risk, you risk losing them, I think. Um, and so, and, and I think, you know, again, it's, it's, it's another one of those things that, you know, that may be where there is a slight difference between older and younger patients. I think, you know, the older patients want to feel like they have a relationship and 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 may feel like, well, I may have other health needs beyond just this initial primary care visit. I want to know that I've got a provider who kind of knows what's going on with me. And um, and so, you know, I, I, I really think it's, you know, important to, to build that in um, and so that, you know, the patients really do feel like they're getting a full visit uh, when they when they talk with a provider, whether it's via telemedicine, whether it's in person, should make no difference. Yeah, and it's a good point because, you know, this the vast majority of communication is nonverbal, right? It's Absolutely. it's eye contact, it's mannerisms, it's facial expressions, it's body movements, all of that stuff. And, you know, if it's if it seems I mean, if you're at a doctor and the doctor's just like over here looking off, you know, to the left doing this and talking to you, it's, you're not going to get the same effect. It's like if you're meeting with somebody and they're just on their computer, right. Ignoring you, it's going to, it's going to skew, skew that. And I think, you know, that conversational approach is almost kind of like more of a coaching approach. And I think Stephen Covey said it, right. Seven habits of highly effective people. It's, it's kind of seek first to understand. And if, if the client, the doctors are understanding the clients and really trying to understand what their state of being is like and what their overall situation is, well, that's going to also increase the trust. It's going to increase the trust, potentially open up the patient. They're going to understand more about them and maybe identify a more deeper root cause to whatever they're experiencing. So yeah, it, it's interesting. It, it, the challenges of remote service now, you know, I think the majority of us are feeling because we've all kind of been catapulted into it and had to just kind of learn on the fly. So it's, it's interesting. So, so data, you mentioned data earlier, right? And as there's a saying, right, that data is the new oil, right? Like it's so important as humans, we make decisions based on data, we're constantly taking in data and, you know, we're making decisions based on it. How, how is data, data analytics really enhancing telemedicine? Yeah, absolutely. 
So I, I think it's got a huge role to play, and, and particularly in, uh, because it, it's this way of, of seeing this number of patients is so new that we've, we've really got to understand the ramifications of it, like we were talking about. You know, I think the, the CEO of Geisinger one time asked me, okay, you know, what, what all we, he knew we'd stood up a bunch during COVID. You know, it's like, all right, give me, give me the inventory of what we've done. And I was enormously proud of all these things. You know, we were in hospitals, we were in skilled nursing facilities, ambulances, and 12, 15% of outpatient visits, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then he, he said, okay, great. Now, how do I know what the right amount is? Like, are there areas where we should be doubling down? We should be doing more telemedicine. Are there areas where as COVID recedes, we should scale back? Um, and the simple answer at the time was, I don't know. <laughs> so I said, okay, let me get back to you. And, uh, and so we spent about a year, you know, really kind of analyzing like, okay, what benefit are we deriving from this? And, and I think there's just enormous need for that. And, and I, and particularly, I think as I talked to other colleagues and it was certainly true at Geisinger as well as, you know, we, we, we were sophisticated enough to know we would not offer telemedicine as an option if the providers didn't feel like they could get everything they needed for that visit in, in, in through telemedicine. If that was not the case, we wouldn't even offer telemedicine. And that's generally true, um, uh, or other health systems as well. Um, but, and, and I, there's been a lot of studies about kind of equivalence of visit between a telemedicine visit and, uh, and an in-person visit. And that's all great. But I think there's a lot more that needs to be understood about what does this mean just longitudinally over over time across an entire episode of care you know what what is the optimal amount of telemedicine you know and it may be that it's just a wash and it's you know whatever is convenient for the patient as long as the provider is fine with it maybe that's the answer but i don't think that it's been shown kind of empirically and so i think there's just a lot of data that needs to be looked at to see because it may well be say in a pregnancy that you know, episode, uh, that visit one, three, and seven uh, should be done telemedicine and the other is in person. You know, I, I'm just making something up. But, you know, that kind of granular data, I think, is available now for the first time. Uh, and and I, I'm, I'm really excited to see. I hope that a lot of health systems are really delving into this level of data and, and really trying to optimize it, you know. So, so one of the things I work in, I'm, I'm the vice president for Search, which is a, it's a nonprofit society where we we put on a conference once a year to to look at unbiased research, you know, not not from vendors, but just unbiased research at, for digital health. Um, and I, you know, as I, I say to them all the time, like we're in a golden age, like we actually have all this data now. And, you know, we really need to be publishing this data. And, and so our policymakers, because I think, honestly, I'm. I, you know, I'm a telehealth advocate of sorts, but I, I, I believe policymakers are generally asking the right questions. I understand why they're a little bit skeptical and want to see, well, before we just turn this on full bore for their all of time, sure would be nice to know, like, what, what, are, what are going to be the, the impacts? And we've got a lot of answers now. You know, I think there was a long time people were worried, oh, it's going to be duplicating visits. And we basically answered that, no, it's really not. Um, but, you know, is there an impact on the overall quality of care? I think there's a lot, a lot of data that still needs to be, uh, to be, you know, delved into and, and published. Yeah, we should really be able to start to optimize. You know, I think right now that we've gotten as far as, okay, more or less a telemedicine visit individually is equivalent to an in-person visit individually. But what does that mean across like a, say an episode of care, or like say a pregnancy? If you have, you know, whatever, nine months, are there, should every visit be done via telemedicine up until the delivery? Should it be certain visits? You know, that kind of granularity, I think, uh, you know, we've got the data now to really delve into that. Um, you can just I, ask ChatGPT now and ChatGPT will know everything. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Ask ChatGPT. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, that's funny. So, um, you know, that, that, that's a kind of a, that's a good point. It's like the data has been collecting more and more and more. There's more and more telemedicine. I know I've definitely been, you know, leveraging telemedicine. It's much more convenient. Um, but, you know, how do you think this is going to evolve in the next, you know, five to 10 years 
from a like client centric healthcare via telemedicine. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, we're, we're definitely going to see some big changes. And I, I think it's, we're going to see a real continuation of uh, really the patient being the hub of, of, that, of that patient's healthcare as it really should be rather than say a given health system. So you know, back in the day, the health system owned all the health records and they just, you know, and it was, you kind of went to the same place every time. I think increasingly patients are going to be owning their own data they're going to be expecting to be able to make their own decisions and do things like self-scheduling and choose their provider. Um, it won't just be calling a, a phone bank and be like, okay, who, you know, who can you set me up with? You know, I think patients are going to be able to expect to really drive a lot more of those kinds of um, decisions. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think it's going to be really important for uh, you know, kind of particularly the, the smaller and the medium sized health systems to really adapt to this. I mean, I think, you know, by and large, the larger health systems, you know, they've all got digital chief digital officers and they've got, you know, they've built up a lot of infrastructure. And, and I think in the past, we've always, you know, those of us in telehealth have often thought this is going to be a great telehealth will be a great equalizer for some of these smaller systems because they'll be able to get access to subspecialists that, you know, it wouldn't make any economic sense for them to recruit full time. They, you know, infectious disease specialist, you wouldn't have one at a 40 bed hospital, you wouldn't be able to keep them busy. But with telemedicine, we can say, hey, I've got access to a infectious disease specialist because I've got a card here and I can dial one in. Um, so that's great. And that that is helpful. But I think the flip side of that coin is that if those systems don't don't make these kinds of investments, the patients are increasingly going to begin to expect that they have all these tools available to them. And if they don't, then they're going to start looking elsewhere because all of a sudden geographic, the geography of where that health system is meet, matters a lot less than it used to. It's not insignificant, but it matters a lot less. Um, and so I do worry that, and it would be tragic if we lost a lot of these, you know, kind of smaller rural systems. Um, but yeah, they, I think they do run a risk of kind of becoming a, a blockbuster video where, you know, blockbuster thrive because they were on every street corner and, and then all of a sudden it didn't matter where your, your movies were coming from. Um, and, and so I think, you know, health systems, particularly the small and medium ones are really going to have to uh, make sure to stay up to date on, on a lot of these kinds of digital tools. Yeah. It, it, it makes me think of Amazon, just how it's been just wiping out competitors, yeah. so to speak, because of the, 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 the ease of use and convenience. And, you know, but I would hope that, you know, there's going to be some multiple players in this space, right. That are going to have to compete because then they would, the way that they would compete, I would think is that, they're going to compete by giving better service, better service and more convenient service. So, and as, as patients start to more and more own their own data and their own patient, you know, control over their own patient data, so to speak, that these systems will have to compete for those patients to come to them, which could drive up the quality of the experience and, and service for sure. That would be good. That would be good. So, so David, you know, we're, we're coming up to time here. So in your opinion, what technology does the world need that doesn't exist yet? Boy, you know, I think we're, again, we're at this kind of pivot point with, we have all this data now and, and we've got to figure out how to make sure it's usable. And I think the, the urgency for this has really been, amped up by you know all the ai and and this kind of you know these new tools that are coming out and there's a little bit of a disconnect between these two things because if the data is messy and has uh you know can uh, a lot of irrelevant pieces in it then you're going to get bad answers out of whatever tool you're using whatever ai process you have um and, and, you know, we, you know, everybody's heard the stories about the, you know, the legal case where, you know, it, it made up a, a, a case that had never happened before, things like that. And we kind of snicker about it, but, you know, in healthcare, it's a huge deal. Um, if, if, 
you know, if the AI is confidently telling you something completely wrong. And I think there's a huge risk of that because first half of my career, I actually worked in data analysis and claims analysis and program evaluation in healthcare. And so I can attest, and many people could as well, but that, you know, claims data and things like that, really messy. <laughs> a lot of really uh, easy to come to the wrong conclusion, um, just looking at raw data. Uh, and so I think there's a real need um, for both kind of cleaning up data and figuring out, being able to cull out data that's not that's not relevant, and and only send to providers, decision makers, clean and relevant data. Um, and it's really hard to do, you know. So even even within a diagnosis code. It, they're pretty broad, you know, it, it, even if it's the correct diagnosis code, it doesn't tell you exactly what's going on with that patient. So I think there's a real need for kind of objective lab data and, and things like that that are, you know, is repeatable and is, is a very you know accurate number. If we're going to really pile that into things like AI algorithms and things like that, which I think we should, but there's there's this interim step that needs to be done. Um, and, and I think there's just a lot of work that needs to be done in that space for sure. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of work in general that just needs, needs to be done in organizations to clean up the data, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and so to be able to benefit from it, but then, you know, it makes me think about human nature is that humans are inherently flawed and we're all kind of a baked in cognitive bias. And that's something that, that we we employ in our company and, and we, you know, help our clients with is is really leveraging technology and data to help them make better decisions based on that data with, you know, getting past their own cognitive bias, but it's extremely important for that human to still be involved to kind of take the data and then take their knowledge and, and kind of use it all collectively. But then when you talk about, you know, tacking on AI on top of that, it's like, you know, humans are inherently flawed and we're building these systems and for us to think that these systems are not going to have some flaws in them you know it, it's insanity and so it just gets dangerous that you need to you know make sure that that human is still involved and, and it just it's not going to be there for a very long time to where we can trust an ai system to take all the data and then just give us the you know the black and white answer so to speak Oh, I totally agree. I totally agree. I think it, there's a real risk. It's it's only going to amplify that the biases that we have that are already kind of baked into our data, um, you know. And so, as an example, you know, like so, a lot of folks believe that um, uh, older folks can't use telemedicine. So if you just look at the data, you would see that a lot of systems they don't even offer it, say, to older patients. Um, and so AI may get the impression that you know, well, maybe that, you know, <clears throat> telemedicine isn't used by older folks doesn't mean that it can't be, you know, and, and so I think that's where, you know, we as, as you know, health systems and, and humans need to, to really be thinking through these things. And, and so like, uh, one thing I've worked with, uh, West Health is a, another nonprofit, and they, they focus on particularly for, uh, healthcare for aged. Um, and so they've, they've started this group called uh, Center for Excellence for Telehealth and Aging, CE4TA. And, um, and it's, they, they've set up guidelines and things like that for, for health systems to really think about, you know, when you're designing a, a telehealth program, maybe think about, is there going to be a caregiver? Don't just think about, oh, well, I assume it'll be the patient that's going to be just dialing in to see the doctor. Maybe they have... Uh, uh, a caregiver, a, a child who helps them with all their visits, factor that in. Um, and, and so, so as part of this, you know, they also, they have a pledge, they ask health systems to sign that, you know, kind of supports that I'm going to build my telehealth with, with older folks in mind. I think these kinds of things are going to be crucial if we're going to really have good data coming out of the AI, even five, 10 years from now, because we've got to really include everybody and not build in kind of our our initial biases about who can and can't do things. Yeah, it's interesting to how to see how all this stuff's going to play out. It's, um, you know, I, I'm, it's still kind of surreal about how COVID's been playing out. But then, you know, the power of, of ChatGPT and that coming out and the accessibility to so many of these tools now is just like, it's still kind of surreal. But, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll see how it plays out over the next few years for sure. So David, 
Thanks again for joining us today and sharing your insights. Very enlightening. A um, couple more questions here, and, and we'll wrap it up for today. But, you know, I'm curious is, you know, we, we covered a lot of topics. You have extensive experience in this space, obviously. How do you hope to help advance patient-centric care? So, you know, what I'm really focused on now is, you know, I'm, I'm doing consulting um, with a lot of, uh, you know, with health systems and, and like West Health, uh, like I mentioned, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of work for telehealth for aged. Um, and I, I work with them quite a lot. Um, and again, I you know, definitely encourage everybody to, to look and sign that pledge. If, if you agree with me that uh, telehealth should be, uh, uh, you know, available to all demographics, including older patients. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I've got uh, uh, people, I'm certainly very happy for folks to reach out to me on uh, LinkedIn. I'm David-Fletcher-Telehealth uh, and, uh, you know, happy to, to share anything from my experience. Um, like I said, I'm doing consulting and I, I also kind of affiliated with uh, Pivot Health Advisors. So um, my, my expertise is really in telehealth, digital health, healthcare workflows. Uh, but I also know people who do things in HR and crisis management and things like that. So either if I can't help you, I probably know somebody who can. So uh, happy to, to uh, have folks reach out and uh, and help in any way I can to really kind of advance this cause, because I I really deeply believe that these tools can be used by just really any demographic, older, any sort of economic status. We've just got to think about how we design the tools. Yeah, think about the overall solution and how to get it to them. Well, again, uh, really appreciate your time, David. Listeners, be sure to check out David's work and follow him on social media. Website links and social handles will be in the show description. And, and you know, finally, David, as a leader in tech, you know, what's one piece of actionable advice that you can give to emerging leaders, uh, really, that are just starting to navigate their own paths and the telehealth field so you know story i always like to tell is uh you know kind of one uh one kind of career detour i took uh but i learned a great deal from it and so uh you know the the main thing i always tell folks is particularly in healthcare to my mind you 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 almost always have two major customers you have patients and providers um and and you have to kind of think of both of them in everything you do because what the providers do often impacts the patients in a major way, and patients tend to rely on providers for their expertise. So it's important to think of both of them together and any kind of tool or, or new workflow, whatever you're looking at, I think really you have to look at it. Are you solving a problem for at least one of those groups and preferably both of them? Um, because if you're not, if you're just kind of enamored of kind of the new toy, and you try to throw it on top of them, it's not going to work. And and I so the example I give is I uh, I worked for a startup in in Nashville, Tennessee for a while and years ago. And uh, disease management was kind of all the rage at the time. It was this kind of burgeoning industry. And the idea of it was, oh, we're going to find people who have a you know a, had a heart attack last year, or congestive heart failure, diabetes, something like that. And we have this bank of nurses calling them, and and they'll they'll kind of talk through life choices and things like that and, and get them on a healthier path. It's a great idea in theory. But what we found was the patients didn't really want to sit there and talk about their disease states with a nurse who they didn't know at all. Um, and so it was good in theory, but we didn't kind of start from, is this a pay something that the patients really want? Uh, payers wanted it, but the patients didn't really want it. And so it, what we found was all the cost savings that this, these kinds of programs were showing were just regression to the mean. It was just, if somebody had a heart attack last year, they probably weren't gonna have a heart attack this year, whether you did anything with them or not. And so, so it really, you know, I learned a lot from that is that don't just build this whole company or solution around what something in theory sounds good. Like, oh, this will save money. You've really got to start with, are you solving a problem that the patients and the providers understand and want solved in a way that works for them. Um, and so that that's how I've really always tried to, you know, any sort of new, I stay very abreast of all the new tools and programs coming out, but I always look at it through that lens is like, is this solving a problem for providers and patients? 
and is it a tool that they'll enjoy and really want to use yeah and, and it's a tough one right because we get excited about how we want to serve or help and you know we have to just slow down and, and look at it from another perspective <laughs> we need to look at it from the perspective of who we're trying to help right so thanks again dave you know really appreciate your time um, audience don't forget to help your fellow tech humans share this podcast and follow me on linkedin at javier guetta 360. see you next time on the tech human experience The Tech Human Experience 